Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Welcome everyone. Um, I'm Severa Davis, I'm Director of Design here at the RSA, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to tonight's special event. Before we begin, could I please ask you to make sure that your mobile phones are on silent? And uh, I wanted to let you know that we're also live streaming um, tonight's event, so hello to all of our viewers all around the world who are watching online. And a reminder that the hashtag is RSA Design if you'd like to get involved in the discussion on Twitter. Now, housekeeping notice is over. Um, I'd like to welcome you again to tonight's event and tell you that tonight's event is part of an RSA program of activity exploring the role of design in industry, and we're delighted to be partnering with Innovate UK uh, to deliver this work. Through a program of research and events, we've been investigating exactly how design can help business and help UK industry to unlock its creative potential. In tonight's culminating event, we're delighted to also announce the publication of a short position paper, which presents key insights from our work and provokes further thinking and exploration around these themes. Um, the paper is available to download today from the RSA website, and we hope you'll do so and then uh, let us know what you think and, um, and feedback as well. Through this work and in the paper, we've sought to understand the practical interventions that can be put into place, as well as the networks that can be galvanized and the cultures that can be fostered to elevate the importance of design in industry. Our aim with the paper and tonight's event is to be a primer for further conversation and to encourage healthy debate about the benefits of excellent design. Our paper includes seven practical recommendations for a range of stakeholders and sectors, from clarifying the language of design to amplifying local networks and much more. To explore these themes, we brought together tonight an expert panel to respond to our research and to these recommendations, drawing on their own rich experience. Each panelist will provide a short response before we move on to a discussion, and uh, there'll be plenty of time to hear your comments and questions as well. Now it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's distinguished guests. First up, we have Deborah Doughton, Chief Executive of the Design Business Association. Deborah works with the industry to champion the tangible and measurable impact of design in business and the public sector nationally and internationally. She'll be speaking first. Next is Will Butler-Adams, who's Chief Executive at Brompton Bicycle. Since 2002, Brompton Bicycle has grown to a, over a 30 million turnover with over 250 staff. Will is a member of the UK Commission for Employment and Skills. Will will speak second. Next is Lee Hopley, Chief Economist at EEF, the manufacturer's organization. Lee is responsible for developing and communicating the organization's policy thinking to its members, the media, government, and other key policy formers. And our fourth speaker is Ben Terrett. To my left, Ben is a designer and partner at Public Digital, a consultancy which helps digitally transform non-UK governments and other large organizations. Ben is also a governor at the University of Arts London, a member of the HS2 design panel and advisor to the London Design Festival. As I said, each of our panelists will speak uh, for around five minutes and then we'll have a short discussion before we open it up to hear your thoughts and questions. Let's get started. Deborah, over to you. Great. Um, it's a pleasure to be here this evening, so thank you very much uh, for the invitation. I have to set a timer going uh, because I have a habit of losing complete all track of time when I'm speaking, um, and I've been given a very strict five minutes. So uh, I was asked to look at two of the recommendations out of this positioning paper, the first two, and the first recommendation has been to embed design support into existing industry institutions and networks to help businesses access wherever they sit on the design ladder. So I'm going to assume a few people uh, don't know what the design ladder is. It's a piece of work that was done some time ago in Denmark, and it looks at people's understanding of design within their business from uh, no knowledge at all through to design embedded at a strategic level um, in a business. Uh, so I had a look at uh, this recommendation and uh, got a, a couple of points really to, to throw back at us uh, or at you. Um, I think if we're trying to embed design in industry, then we need to keep our focus on industry. Uh, we bandy around the term user um, a lot, user focus, user design, and so on. And in this case, I think we need to be very clear about who the user is uh, that we're trying to target uh, with these recommendations. And I think it's the CEOs of businesses. It's people like Will uh, to my left here. 
um, because I think that's where the strategic decisions um, are made uh, in business. Um, and uh, the body of people that uh, advise them, that sit with them on their boards. So I think um, rather than looking at things from an industry-wide perspective, which can be very broad, we have to narrow it down to uh, the people that we're trying to target. Um, I think we are an industry, the design industry is an industry that can measure its impact in business, and I think the Design Effectiveness Awards that the DBA runs proves that. Um, I also don't think that our job in life is to move people up the design ladder, so from little understanding to design embedded. It's simply not appropriate for some businesses to go that design embedded route. So it's not a one, what's that description, one size fits all, that's the one. Um, it's kind of horses for courses, um, and you're going to have to get an understanding of where the business is at and what is appropriate. Naturally, I think the people who are best to do that are designers. It's what they were trained to do, to look at the challenges uh, that businesses face and to look at what uh, the solutions to those are. I think if we go down the route of something that is too process-orientated, uh, then the uh, danger is that expert intuition is pushed to one side that designers acquire over years of practice, the original thinking um, is lost quite often in those proce processes. Um, and it doesn't matter what you put in a sausage machine, you kind of get a sausage out the other end. And we don't want a bunch of businesses that all look like the same sausage at the end of this process. So um, one other point I would make is I think we need to use business to convince business. Um, any amount of intermediaries sat in the gap, uh, sat in that space, to some extent designers themselves selling this into industry is a hard sell. Um, I think the people who are best able to do this are the people whose businesses have directly benefited from this uh, themselves. The second point I was asked to look at, ensure that design support is accessible at a local level. So this is tapping into uh, the industrial strategy piece that says that we need to be supplying all of our services at a local level. Um, I agree with some of that. I think geography is probably not the thing to focus on because I think in any area um, of industry, there is specialist expertise advice available. And at the end of the day, if it's not where you are geographically, you will have to go and get it because the tendencies are that those clusters have come together, that those expertise um, have been developed uh, where those businesses are. And let's face it, not everyone is an expert in everything. If I look at the area of industrial design, for example, you could start to hand pick uh, businesses across the UK that sit in certain places um, and there isn't an awful lot of competition within uh, those regional areas uh, for what they do. Um, so if you're an international brand operating at an international level, you're going to have to buy from businesses that are geographically spread across the UK if you want to be competing in international markets. They might be in Warwick, they might be in Bristol, they might be in London. Um, interestingly, um, there's mention in the report about... Um, uh, the locality thing I've done. There's the, design is an industry in itself. I think we sometimes forget that the designers who sit in businesses are businesses themselves, and they too uh, have strategies uh, for growth. Um, and a very big piece of their attention is being focused on international at the moment. So I would just think we need to bear in mind this idea that while we're trying to promulgate more business in the UK market and encourage uh, design into those businesses, um, there are a huge amount of efforts being made for those businesses to be exporting their services. Um, and the UK does that very, very successfully in design. Um, so uh, we just need to make sure that we have those two things uh, in mind. Um, and then the experience of uh, clusters, um, to assume that a cluster that is newly set up uh, today could be giving the sort of strategic advice that um, a significant business or a business that has great ambitions, this isn't about the size of business, it's about the ambition the business has. Um, the idea that a newly developed cluster with very young people in it uh, could deliver what experience and intuition, expert intuition delivers over the years, um, I think is short-sighted. So we need to be careful uh, that we aren't putting too much pressure on local clusters to deliver at a level that they simply cannot. Um, and in my view, designers, great designers, take quite some time to gestate. Um, so I'm going to leave it there. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Deborah. Five minutes Will. and 50 seconds. I <laughs> My thing isn't nearly as accurate, so I, I'm, I'm I feeling guilty. You? Yeah, you, come on. Um, Stop. So, I, I, so my brief is probably completely wrong, because I'm not sure I completely read the brief. Um, so, but I have read the paper, 
And I don't know whether you guys have read the paper, but anyway, there's a whole load of recommendations and it's talking about design. But I'm coming at it from a slightly different perspective, which is I couldn't give a stuff about the designy stuff. You know, I'm trying to make things that are useful. That's it. Useful. For you, our people, you know, handy, makes life a bit better. That's it. Now, if you want that, then of course design forms part of it. But in my experience, it's not a sort of one-dimensional thing. We've got this thing here in the report, which is so lovely, but then I am so disagree. It says here, Sir Mark Walport, Chief Executive, UK Research and Innovation, said, the new industrial revolution is powered by steam, which I agree with. Science, technology, engineering, arts, and maths. But this is the thing I really disagree with. He then goes on to say, the iPhone and the Dyson work not only because they're well-engineered, but because they're extraordinarily well-designed. Well... I suppose there is some truth in that, but the bit for me is it, it's, it's a sort of one and the same. It's not like you have engineering over here and you have design over there. They are implicitly, completely embedded. You can't, you can't conceive something unless you understand the engineering and the engineering affects the design and then the design affects the makeability and the, everything, the supply chain. So trying to sort of put us into little boxes doesn't do it for me. Um, there have been some recommendations, and you will see them in the report. But I'm sort of condensing them into three, from my perspective, with um, three minutes to go. To me, when I look at our, 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 our UK PLC opportunity, we're full of mad, nutty people with loads of ideas, but it gets best bashed out of us too early on. And we get told that we need to be successful when we're little, and we're told through our education that we need to be successful. And successful is basically earning loads of money so you can buy loads of crap you probably don't need. <laughs> and that is not what makes me happy. And so what we need to do is really cherish and lift up success in manufacturing, in designing cool stuff, in using our brain, in contributing to society, and be a bit more vocal about where in the UK we are delivering success, both emotionally for society, and funnily enough, if you get the emotion and the society bit right, you find you make a load of money. There's a guy turning over 1.6 billion, kicking out about 450 million a year, sucking dust off the floor. And he does it in such a way that makes people happy. Well, good on him. I mean, that's insane. So we should be celebrating that more. And if you celebrate it more, people will go, actually, do I want to be a banker tapping on keys all day, moving imaginary numbers from one dodgy person to the next? Or do I want to create something that makes society better? I think I'll go off and do something that's positive. Number two, and I touched on it earlier, there is a massive misconception of our industry, whether it's design, engineering, creation, art, steam, as we discussed, and it starts at school, and it starts at primary school, and it's affected by teachers and parents who misunderstand what we stand for and the great careers that we have to give to the next generation coming up. And there is an important responsibility for all of us in industry to get into schools and engage with teachers and engage with parents, because the careers curriculum is absolutely stuffed. You know, you've got somebody who hasn't had a job for 20 years and the industry's moving so fast they don't know whether it's Easter or Christmas. So we, the industry, need to go in and tell people about what's going on and get them excited. And the third thing is stimulate. And I mean, you know, obviously we're buttering up Innovate UK because they've sponsored the event and here they are. But in our case, we had a case where, were it not for Innovate UK, we wouldn't have got the board, who was slightly stuffy, to back our e-bike project. They definitely were the tipping edge. And government is not very good at picking winners, as we know, but they can stimulate as long as they don't try and back too much and as long as they make their entry forms a bit more simple so little businesses can actually navigate them and apply for the money. Um, those three things, for me... I think, will contribute. But the fact that we're having a debate about it, the fact that we're raising the profile, and the fact that, you know, JLR, J um, Dyson are contributing real money to the government has changed the whole perception of design, manufacturing, engineering in a way that we haven't had for probably a generation.
So it's exciting. Thank you, Will. Lee. Hit me with a timer. Oh, <laughs> that's all right. Ah, <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Um, so I'm an economist by background, so that tends to be an occupation where you don't want too much design. Um, but I try and be one of these kind of frightful intermediaries between business and government. Um, so I, for me, it was actually really helpful to see a recommendation in the report looking at um, how we kind of bridge the language barrier between policymakers, um, people who want to support and work with industry and manufacturers in particular, my constituency and businesses um, themselves, um, largely because, as you can probably tell, um, Will and I don't often speak the, the same language from a kind of creative and an economic perspective. Um, but I want to kind of reflect on what some of that sort of clarifications around um, language um, might look like um, for businesses. Um, I'm glad Deborah explained what the design ladder looks like, because that means I don't have to. Um, but uh, I definitely see in sort of traveling around the country, engaging with, with manufacturers, companies on different steps of that ladder. Um, and very few of them would, would talk about it in design terms. Um, they are essentially trying to solve a problem within their own business. Um, you know, not many of them that I meet break the molds like Will does, um, but they are all trying to kind of fix a problem for their customer with a, a new product or a new process that they're trying to bring to the market and ultimately be commercially successful. Um, but some of them deploy um, tools such as design at, at different points. So a lot of them kind of see it as a kind of corrective measure um, and deploy tools perhaps not at, not at the right time, not at the, at the conception um, of a new product um, or a new project. Um, now, there's lots of reasons why, you know, businesses choose to, to act in that way. It may be about cash or capability or the certainty of the returns that they'll get on that investment. I actually don't want to dwell too much on that. Rather, think about some of the opportunities that we have with new technology that could perhaps change um, the way they think about design and the way the design community thinks about the way they engage with, with manufacturers. And I want to focus um, firstly and very briefly on the fourth industrial revolution or industry 4.0 or however you choose to think about it. Um, that is essentially, a, it's, it's a new lexicon for manufacturers. So we started talking about this only in the last two or three years, and it does feel like it's something that businesses have actually quite quickly become reasonably fluent in. They know that this is a huge business opportunity. Um, there's lots of new technology out there that can make a huge difference to the future success of their business. So whether it's about deploying sensors, gathering in data, analyzing that, thinking about how that um, is uh, influencing the design of their product or their customer experience. Um, there's companies that are different stages um, of this um, evolutionary journey. A lot of them are simply kind of conceptualizing what some of this um, technology will ultimately mean for that, for, for them before they go by investing and kind of revolutionizing their business models. Design does need to be a fundamental part of that, but I think it's important that it's not an overlay once companies have gone too far down the journey to start thinking about how they kind of bolt on some of those concepts. It really needs to be kind of built in um, from the beginning of that journey. I think the second opportunity, just touching on the policy side, um, which is uh, quite a large chunk of my job on industrial strategy, um, there's, you know, there's a big opportunity again here to think about how we pitch design to industry. I think there's some risks here, but I've only got a couple of minutes left, so that may be something that we can pick up in the questions. Um, but again, um, this whole concept of grand challenges, so how do industry and the government work together to create the conditions where UK businesses are really capturing commercial benefits from meeting societal challenges. And again, this is a fundamentally new way of government working with business to make sure that we can kind of capture that benefit um, for the UK economy. And we need to be thinking about where design is part of the, that challenge program and the missions that are developed right from the get-go rather than this being something um, that, we, that we try and kind of capture um, at a later point. Um, so essentially, businesses are facing loads of change, as they always do on, on lots of fronts, the kind of the policy environment, and particularly the kind of technological um, change that is happening, as well as having to deal with their business as usual, kind of meeting customer orders um, and uh, getting product out the door. Um, and I think there's a, a, a huge role for the design community to get involved early in some of these process changes and try and talk the same language as they are when they're thinking about tackling some of these, um, some of these big challenges. 
Excellent. Great. Right, who's going to time me? Who wants to uh, volunteer? <laughs> um, right. Uh, I hope this isn't going to be one of those panels where everyone agrees, because that's really boring. So I'm going to try and find something to disagree with, although I agreed with most of what my fellow panellists said. Um, I read the report, um, and uh, I felt like I'd read it a thousand times before, if I'm honest. Um, it's the same report making the same type of recommendations to government, and you know, I've sort of thought that. I mean, it's great. I agree with it. I agree with sort of the report and the broad nature of it. But you know, so what? It didn't work the other 20 times. Why would it work this time? Um, I've been asked to talk about points six and seven. So let's sort of take those one at a time. Number six was the reduce the perceived risk in investing in design. Um, and I've spent the uh, most recent part of my career, I suppose, um, with CEOs or with government ministers, um, and then also trying to get good design work done. But I think, um, like Will said, I've almost never talked about design in trying to get good design work done, because I think CEOs and ministers don't really care, and if I was a CEO or a minister, I wouldn't care either. Um, what they care about is the outcome they're trying to achieve, or the problem they're trying to fix, or whatever that is. And so... Where I've had most traction is by saying, you have this problem, I, we can help by doing this, and then you do that, and that works, and they go, that's great, we should do that again. And you go, yeah, that's brilliant. And then you do that three or four times, and then at the Christmas drinks, you say, by the way, that's called design. They go, oh, great, you know, thanks very much. Um, you know, and I think that's okay. You know, I think that's okay. If you work out what the outcomes are they want, and you can help deliver that, I think that's a, a good thing. Um, some of the risk, I think, again, the, the report mentions this, and all the reports mention this. There are now fantastic numbers about the creative industries. There are fantastic numbers about the value of design, gross value added, all that kind of stuff. But those numbers don't get through. So uh, uh, it can't be the numbers. It can't, more numbers can't be the answer. We've got to try um, a different approach. And, and one approach that I found um, very successful is rather than... Uh, numbers or ROI or that stuff which is important is putting things in people's hands and I think there's a big value in making things to think and then there's a big value in giving those things to people uh, to learn from and what that means in practical terms is making some form of prototype that gets put in front of real people that gets real feedback and then you get real feedback from that as a designer. And where that works in the boardroom is you can say, right, we all had different opinions. You had this opinion, I had this opinion. Here's a video, for example, of a real person using that, 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 high, that assumption that we had. And look what happens when that, that gets put in front of a real person. Um, and that, that evidence is very, very hard to argue with. In fact, I would say 99 times out of 100, it's impossible to argue with. So I think if you want to reduce risk in the boardroom, you need to do that type of real prototyping and then get CEOs and ministers and board members and people exposed to that, you know, really, really um, put that in front of them. I think clarifying the language of design is a huge problem, and I think designers are the worst at this. I mean, in this report talks about design ladder. I had absolutely no idea what that was. Um, and then when I saw it, it, yeah, it makes sense. But I think, you know, if you go into the boardroom and say, well, the good thing, Mr. CEO, is that we're on the second stage now of the design ladder, it's like, next. So, you know, I, there's, there's a huge work to that. Um, very briefly, education. So design, art and design education is in a real, uh, is a, is in a real bad place in this country at the moment. Um, there are many reasons behind that, um, not least the white paper of 2010. I'm sure most of you know about that. But the um, GCSE, uh, students taking GCSE art and design subjects has dropped by about 4%, um, and it's, it's increasing every year. Um, and the main, there are lots of reasons for that, but one I, I like to use to sort of focus the mind is it is possible to get a good or an outstanding Ofsted rating without doing any art or design subjects and, and without doing music or drama or any creative subject whatsoever. So just think about that for a minute. If you are a headmaster and you're under a lot of pressure and you're, you need to get your school up those Ofsted ratings because that's almost the only way you're measured these days and your funding is being cut, you're going to ditch all the creative subjects and just focus on English and maths and so on. So so that's a real problem. So what, what can we do practically to help that? Well, again, we can tell the government, but, you know, we've done that a thousand times and that's not working. So um, practical things you can do. If you're a designer and you've got a design business, offer to take the art and design teachers 
around your business. Offer to explain to them about what, what careers are available because often the problem is, as, again, as Will alluded to, is mum and dad want me to get a real job. Um, if you're a designer, go to your local, local school, local schools, like I've done recently, and offer to do career talks. There, there was a, a career programme at a secondary school near me where they had... Uh, you know, they had one for journalism, they had one for doctors, they had one for bankers. You know, they had all these, these people doing career talks and nothing in the creative industries whatsoever. Um, and, and I think that was, a, that was a real help because some of those kids were coming in saying, well, I really, really love drama and dance and that's what I want to do. But I'm also really good at maths. So, you know, mum and dad say, well, I think, we're not sure, but we think you should do maths because I don't know how you're going to get a job in drama. You know, she's just able to, to talk about that. Um, so those, those are some practical things you can do and... I think that was about seven minutes, so sorry for that. <laughs> right. Um, well, this is going well. They've all slated our paper, and <laughs> um, I said that this was, this was supposed to be a, a healthy debate, uh, opening up the conversation. I think we're, we're doing that, so we're in the middle of doing that. Um, to be honest, we, we tried to major on the positive aspects of embedding design in industry, and but I think it is worth talking about those barriers and it's come up in each of your, in your short responses. Um, and so, Lee, particularly, you'd, you'd mentioned the sort of the risks and some of the barriers and I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. Um, as I said, we've deliberately tried to be, to, to be positive about this, to see a sort of more positive design-led future. And uh, I, we didn't want this report to be sort of another sort of moaning, Ben, around... Um, sort of what, you know, why it's not working. Um, let's take a couple of minutes to address that point, uh, and then I'd, I'd like to move on to some other points around uh, the industrial strategy and the challenge funds. Um, I mean, just in terms of business barriers, we say it in all types of new activity and, and innovative um, activity within, within manufacturing companies, and it is around having... The, adequate resources, whether those are secured from external sources or having enough profits, having the skills and capability within the business. So that might be, you know, an access to a talent pool in the local area, being able to bring through talented apprenticeships. I think increasingly it's about having the right management and leadership, which is a kind of, it's a tough issue that I think we haven't talked enough about in the UK. Um, and it's quite difficult for EEF because um, we represent kind of manufacturing leaders, so it's kind of turning around and going, well, you're, you know, are you as good as you think you are? Um, this is, oh, I forgot this is being videoed. Uh, that's good. Um, <laughs> and, and the other one does come back to certainty about returns. If I do this, if I bring these people in, you know, if I go out and get external help, how can I be confident that, it's, that we're going to get a kind of a good return on it? Um, particularly when you've got, you know, a finance director who is not taking a visionary long-term approach to some of these projects. So there's a kind of Again, that's a management issue of your own board and their kind of appetite for risk and to, and to do something a bit different. And, and I don't actually think that's necessarily unique to design. It's, it's lots of kind of risky, innovative projects that we see companies grappling with. I would just add on that. You know, we've been fiddling around with our bike. I've been there 16 years and we've grown. We never stop venture capital people trying to buy our business. But they are just, you know, it's three to five years. It's a joke. It's taken us 10 years to develop a flipping e-bike. You can't have a three to five year horizon when you're dealing with delivering innovative stuff. It's a sort of five to 10 year horizon. So and the entire city of London is built on short term returns. So the whole ownership structure, the whole funding structure is not aligned to really strong innovation, to risk-taking, to going down a dark alley and go, whoops, better go back and try this one, get to a point where you develop, de deliver something. And, you know, I know I keep going on about the guy that's sucking up the dust with his funny-coloured hoover, but, you know, he did it himself. He, kept, he had a long-term vision. And that is a you know, fundamental problem in, in our society, particularly in London, where a lot of the funding comes from. 
Um, but th there is positive because, of course, we have lovely crowdfunding now. You can reach out beyond the, the banks and the VCs and you can mobilise funding and there are other ways of, of getting around it and the barriers to entry are coming down. So, you know, I think it is quite exciting in terms of how we can rethink and, and get around the traditional methods of funding your business. Uh, well, I would just add, I think as a design industry, we all, we're always criticising CEOs for not understanding design, uh, which I think is a bit unfair. I, I think, you know, as designers, we should spend more time trying to understand uh, the CEO or the business, um, you know, and, and how we can help them. And probably, you know, as I think we've all alluded to, that means a bit less time talking about design when you get in front of the CEO and more time talking about the, the positive outcomes. I mean, I, I think you know, most CEOs do want to make this better or, you know, fix that or make things useful. And so it's about how you can help do that um, rather than necessarily talking about design. But I, as, a, as a practical thing in the report, I would have liked to have seen some suggestions, for example, for how designers could do that. So rather than how we can educate CEOs, what can designers do to learn more um, about the CEO or the boardroom or the particular challenges they face? You know, if you are a CEO today in... Uh, you know, a company with more than 10 people, you're under huge amounts of pressure. And, and the bigger the company, the bigger the pressure. So, you know, how can you, you apply a bit of empathy there um, and trying to, you know, help with some of those challenges? I mean, I think design can help massively um, with that, obviously. Um, but I think d uh, designers are um, too often, you know, spend too much time navel-gazing. So on this... <laughs> sort of why we did all of this, actually. Um, so turning to the industrial strategy and particularly the industrial strategy challenge funds, and Will, you picked up on, on the point of sort of Innovate UK having supported the, your e-bike. I'm wondering, um, and, and for those of you in the room who may not know, that the industrial strategy challenge funds are providing funding and support to UK businesses and researchers specifically designed to promote innovation um, in the context of the grand challenges which are set out as uh, an aging society, the mobility of goods and services, uh, AI in the data economy, and then clean growth. So what is the role of, of design in these? Um, and where do you think that a design approach might particularly uh, further support innovation? That one's for me. Okay. Anybody who will Hold have on. Let's <laughs> get my little brain to compute. Um, see. Shall I jump in while you're computing? Yeah, you can jump in. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just forming, but you jump in. So I think the, um, I think the challenge in all of these things is that... Um, what designers are very good at is, the, is imagining a future state um, and looking at how we get there. Um, and I think it was the point someone made here about designers needing to be in that conversation at, from the outset. So if you look at the role of designer um, as being the, the yeast in the, in the bread, uh, you have all of those other functions that are there, but without that, um, I mean, you can kind of put the mix into the oven, but it won't come out looking particularly great. So you have designers there as a the yeast uh, working with all of the other uh, experts, uh, businesses um, that, uh, that, that are needed to be able to create uh, that vision of the future. Um, and I think it's where they're capable then of translating that into a tangible output. Um, so it's one thing to have the idea, it's quite another to turn that into uh, a commercial idea that, that, that um, is going to make it in the market. Um, and when you look at some of the challenges um, that are coming up, um, there's another point which isn't mentioned in the report, which I think does need looking at, which is the whole area of ethics. Um, there are some huge challenges uh, that are facing society. And so I don't see any element of an ethical bar uh, barometer coming into this. And I'm not sure what the answer is, um, but it feels as though our conversations around this are bereft of that at the moment. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. Um, so how do you start to, to play that into discussions? Well, I'm now, I'm now going to chip in. Um, the thing I struggle with a bit, so we've got about 280 people in Brompton at the moment. Um, is this concept of a designer. That, doesn't, that simply does not feature in our company. 
Everybody contributes to design. I've written, written down a few things here. So we designed our own bar where we go and drink beer and get lashed. <laughs> and it's made out of bits of Brompton. It's bloody awesome. There's nothing like it in the world. It's great, and it sits on a mezzanine. And when we have a party, it's huge. Um, we've got Raspberry Pis. Our line is intelligent. So we had a guy who used to inspect frames, um, and it turned out he was a closet programmer. It's a flipping genius. But we all came together, and we had 40 quid touchscreens, 22 quid Raspberry Pis. We've got a 22-station line. Every tack time, three and a half seconds, we've got 16 million variants. We've got torque sensors talking to the Raspberry Pi. It tells the guy what's coming. It tells him SOP, standard operating procedures. It's flipping awesome. This guy's a programmer. He's a designer. He's talking to the guys who are the section leaders, who are designing what they need. I mean, it's riddled in it. And then we've got our luggage. We've got material science. We've got fatigue, stiffness. We've got autobraze machine, which is like 250 grand thermographic cameras, PLC controlled, it's super cool autobraze machine. It's just it's just, it's just design all over it. And shop floor layouts design, then we've got ERP, then we've got the Brompton itself, we've got electric, we've got the hire scheme, which is super cool. But the idea that there's like somebody goes, right, I'm the designer, you know, that doesn't happen. We've opened a shop in New York and it's full of design. It's about engaging the customer, telling our story. As soon as you walk in, the whole thing's being designed. That's our FD who's doing that, but he's also mad keen on retail and he's really imaginative. So where does it stop? It, it, what we need to do is, it comes back to the start. You've got to engage with your customer. You've got to create fantastic experiences, fantastic products. You've got to not put people in boxes. You've got to allow people to, you know, be artistic. And I wrote down here earlier on, the thing that does me in is, you know, when you go to session school, are you arty or are you maths and sciencey? All oh, the arty lot, you can go over there. Oh, the maths and sciencey sort, you, you, you're guibs, you can go over there. Tosh. You, you know, design, engineering, you've got to be imaginative, you've got to think differently, you've got to be arty, but you've got to understand science. You know, it's the STEAM thing. So, to me, it, it, it's, um, the compartmentalization isn't, doesn't reflect our business. It's just, but the fact is, design has to be riddled in everything if you want to compete, be more competitive, and be more successful, and commercially, you know, beat the competition. Because if you can't do that, you can have all the best design in the world, and you'll just go bust. Where, where do you think you are on the design ladder? <laughs> As you might imagine. I haven't got a clue. Ask the customer. Um, in the interest of time, I think I'll open it up to our audience. I know we have a highly informed and engaged audience in the room. So if I could kindly ask you to raise your hand if you have a question and wait for the roving microphone to come to you. Uh, I see one in the center here. And please speak clearly into the microphone so that our uh, online viewers can hear you as well. Hi. I'm Nick from Echo, uh, brand design company. Um, the, the title is the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, the word revolution's in there, which means massive change. Um, and we've heard from Klaus Schwab, who coined the phrase in the first place, it's <coughs> this is going to happen very quickly. Um, what does the panel think that design contri contribute towards that? Um, that change and the way we have to think differently about uh, the world in the future. I'll, I'll, I'll take that one. I, I, so I, I think what the, what's changed, you know, recently in terms of uh, how many revolutions we're having um, is the internet. And what the internet has done for design is it's it's made it um, it's made it. Lots way easier for consumers to see a badly designed product and then ditch it and go somewhere else. I'm talking primarily about internet services. So it's a lot harder to, to hide behind a badly designed product. So, um, you know, and at the same time, the internet has, has also lowered the, lowered the barriers to, to many things, but it's lowered the barriers to design. So it's basically easier to make a well-designed product and it's harder to hide, hide behind a badly designed one. And that has put mostly established companies, but not exclusively, has put lots of people in a, in a real tricky problem because you have to be better at, at, de at designing products, basically. So that, that's a huge, huge opportunity for design, but it, there's also... A, a real danger that design gets it wrong, and, and this sort of opportunity, I think, gets taken gets taken away from them. Um, but th there's a huge opportunity. I mean, the, the hiring of designers in Silicon Valley is, is you know, is absolutely crazy. Um, but I think it, it's the the fact now that it's yeah, it's just harder to hide behind a badly designed internet product. Anyway, it's not quite the same in physical products yet, but it's it's coming. I think it's coming. Uh, 
I would, I would completely concur on the physical because the same thing occurs with the physical because if you design a, 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 a bad product, then suddenly the customers, you can have some amazing brand, yeah, no disrespect true. to your business, yeah. um, and some amazing marketing campaign, and it all looks great, and everyone's pretty, and they're all perfect. Um, and then you buy the thing, but it's crap. Yeah. And, uh, and then you tell everybody, yeah. and you just ruin the marketing yeah. campaign. Yeah, so it, it totally yeah. replies to, to the, yeah. the physical product as well, in my opinion. So I, I'm going to disagree slightly, um, because I think... That's always been true, but the, the overlay of the fourth industrial revolution technology means that I think the de design community is going to have to think much broader than this being about the design of a product and how it's sold and e-commerce. It's about the use of data and ownership and how that changes the customer experience and the lines between manufacturing and service and sales becoming ever more blurry. So. Companies are now at the start of that journey, and I don't think it's going to happen super quickly, actually. I think we are still just at the early stages of this. But as manufacturers are kind of grappling with what some of these technolo technological changes might mean, I do think that design is going to have to think is kind of bigger if they want to effectively be a part of that. Because the, the, you're right, the opportunity is huge, but I think it's bigger than you alluded to. Um, so I'll throw in my tuppence worth as well. Um, I think the contribution that designers can make to this, uh, it goes back to the size of the challenges. I mean, they are really complex challenges. And I think one of the challenges that faces the design industry is that um, we have an education system that is forcing people to go in one direction or another. Um, you could argue that designers tend to kind of make it to the top, kind of regardless of the conditions within which uh, they're contained, but I don't think that's the, the, the case uh, given the amount of change that's happened in the education system at the moment. And the fact of the matter is that these challenges are now so complex, we need to be driving the brightest people into the design industry. Um, so Because it's going to require people with, with uh, a breadth of understanding of what's happening in society and the ability then to translate that into products and services that we find desirable, that we want to use, that will uh, encourage us to change our behaviours. Um, and I don't think that comes from just drawing a pretty picture. It might, um, um, but it just... So this, I think the challenge is that um, I think we need to be attracting actually the really clever people, the people who have the capacity uh, to think through this um, into, our, in, in, into the sector and into these types of challenges. And uh, we had a question over there, the lady in the second row. Hello? Yes. Um, I used to be a, a director of Lend-Lease Design. Um, I now work for Vertimus, my own business. I'm advising councils already on their 2050 plan and how they're going to change their cities and towns. Clearly, design needs to be part of that process. It, strangely enough, rarely is. Um, I think this is a huge opportunity. I think William's absolutely on the money. And the rest of the panel, we really need to get our brightest and best people involved. Clearly, this is something which technology is brilliant at. We're able to look at return on investment right on the drawing board, where all the costs and all the expenses are to be juggled with and manipulated. Um, Clearly, this is an area where you need supreme ability in technology and the ability to understand how to manipulate data. This is where maths and design really does need to come together in a really exciting way. We can manipulate so many things before we even turn up on site using algorithms, artificial intelligence, all sorts of stuff, which, you know, it's, it's right there. We can start creating models using 3D printers, which people can play with and know that some of the stuff works before we even turn up on site. We can start to model long-term effects of some of the products and projects that we're de developing and designing. We already have in London. Just look at the, the legacy we've left with the 2030, uh, sorry, the 2012 Olympic Stadia, most of which was conceived and created by designers who are supremely experienced and most of them are global. With their expertise, 
that's been pushing boundaries beyond anywhere we could possibly have imagined just a decade ago. There's so much more that we can do as designers. We can really change the world, and that's really exciting. I hope that you're on that journey with us all. Thank you. Any comments or shall I have to say something, because it's a pet project of mine. But you're right in everything you say, but something that's lacking, and it needs to come, if you like, from designers, because they have an appreciation of all the things you've talked about, is vision. And, and that taps into the point you're making about getting bright people into this area. But the thing that's been driving me nuts for a good 10 years is everybody spending billions of pounds on automated vehicles. Google's doing it, Facebook's doing it, they're all rushing around, spending billions of pounds, the government's pumping money in. But hold on, it's, it's nuts. Because, okay, we've got all these cars rushing around our city. Great, let's get a shot of them. And they're making the air pretty smelly. So let's get a shot of that, because these will all be... These will all be um, you know, electric, but they're not, they're, not, they're not visionary. They're just going, they're just, they're just taking technology and plonking it in in sort of five years' time. The problem we've got in our cities is health. We've got net migration going on all around the world. The thing that's doing us in, up in our heads and in the rest of our body, our physical health and mental health, is we're doing no exercise. So it's no good just rolling out of the RCA into some automated little pod to take us off to our Costa coffee so we can lob down another, you know, 15 shots of coffee and a couple of squirts of, you know, caramel. We've got to get people doing active and doing stuff. And I'm trying to do that, and I can't get a bean out of some of these organisations, and yet they're all spending billions on automated vehicles. So I'll get off my soapbox, but I sort of... <laughs> <laughs> um. Do we have any questions? Can I just um, add something? So I, I'd actually quite like my mother to be in an automated car as opposed to behind the wheel of a, uh, the current thing. Uh, I disagree. <laughs> Let my, her... my mother's 74. She loves her electric Brompton. Come on. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll give it a go. Yeah. Um, I think that, again, it's one I of these things, like isn't it, where control, we, just, but... <laughs> we just have to be careful that uh, when we use the word, the word like designers, we don't just think they're all this one thing. Uh, you know, you, you kind of stamp them out of some sort of conveyor belt. Um, and there are designers who specialise in the healthcare sector, um, th and perhaps this is part of the complexity uh, that, that people have around the, the, um, the, the industry, is that you're talking about experts who have worked for years in very specific areas. Um, and so um, when it comes to cities um, and the environments we live in, I mean, that's not a designer, it's a, it's a whole group of people. Um, but I want to make the point that it's not just about designers. I'm not saying that, that designers are the um, kind of the, the, the one-size-fits-all, they'll solve all the problems. Um, it's about acting as the facilitator between all of the other people who have an influence or have an opinion or review on something. But there is something unique about what they do, is, and it's kind of the magic bit, which is that they have this ability to be able to intuitively interpret um, all of that. Um, I don't think it comes at the start of the careers. I think it comes uh, later on. Um, and when you come across those types of designers, they are inspiring to work with. And I think they are also, you know, that's a key word, is that as an industry sector, they are the sector who should be able to inspire people to change. Um, and so the way that we talk about it, the way that we tell our stories, the way we try to communicate, I think fundamentally needs to change. Um, because if we want to make people change, I think we're going to have to inspire them uh, to do that in the future. Great. Uh, the lady in the front row with an orange coat, and then I take the question in the third row here. Anyone over here? Hello, Anne Boddington. I'm a Pro Vice Chancellor of Research and Business at Kingston University. I'm also a Professor of Design Innovation. Um, I just like you. You mentioned a couple of things, and I just want to join a few bits together. Um, I would posit, having been in education for 30 years in design, that we need a designed education. I think we have a badly engineered education. So I do think that sometimes engineering and design don't come together. They may in Brompton, but I think we have a very, very badly 
design, uh, designed education system and what we need is a designed education system, not a design education system. And I think that's a real issue. And I, uh, to come to Ben, and you might want to comment on this, you know, if data is the new clay, then I think our education system needs to be redesigned to take on those questions. And I'd really like to hear what you think those subjects might be, because I don't think they're the ones we currently teach at any level. I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, I was involved a few years back um, in getting involved in something called Inspiring the Future. It's a little charity. We've got about 40,000 volunteers and uh, we put them into about 8,000 schools now, um, both primary and secondary. So there are problems that we have that are quite big. And um, I'm worrying about bicycles. So I can't, you know, you can't spread yourself too thin. But I definitely know that certainly in schools where there's 80% free school meals, you know, there's just no inspiration at all. They've just got zilch. So I just, in, in the context of my little bit, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but in the sort of short term, I just feel that if you can get more of us, doesn't matter whether you're engineers, designers, just this sort of industry into schools and into classrooms and into talk to teachers, that might just be a little bit of a catalyst. You're not convinced. I'm not convinced at all. I think what Ben described earlier about how you get somebody to desire something, I would say if you, project, if you did project-based and experiential learning in a school and taught maths, English, history and other subjects in the same project, you would actually be doing design and you'd be doing the data as clay bit but we don't. We teach them as separate subjects. And then we try to tell somebody to join them together. Yeah. And that's what design does. That's probably all design does. You've just talked about it for the last 40 minutes. So I would completely agree with you. I think the... Um, it's, not a, it's actually... The, I'm going to be slightly controversial here. I'm not sure what I think about the numbers that are dropping. If I thought we were able to get more creativity into the rest of the curriculum... So, because actually the role of the designer is to be able to uh, convince, intrigue, delight, uh, inspire, um, and you need good language skills to be able to do that. Um, you learn that through your English lessons. Um, there's an element of the mathematical, certainly as an industrial designer, I would have thought in most design disciplines. Um, so the idea that you would, at a very early age, try and hive people off from one thing to the other, part of the challenge the DBA has is in driving... Uh, business skills into designers in the professional uh, realm um, because we've actually shoehorned people down a particular route at a very early stage. And so I think I'm not advocating that we teach designers um, business skills um, because I think getting your head around design is actually quite a big, big ask. But I do think there's something about the way that you could instill more creativity in the curriculum so that you end up with a more creative workforce going through all of those other subjects as well. Because as you said, it exists in, in everything that we do. Um, I, I, let me just, just come back on that because you addressed me directly. I, I feel a bit like, so um, Severus said I'm a um, governor of the University of the Arts London. Uh, and when I had my interview for that appointment, they kept asking me what, what I thought the future of education was. And I kept saying, I've got no idea. And they kept asking me. So, um, uh, you know, eventually I said, well, I really don't have any idea, but you keep asking me, so it must be important, so let's have a chat with that. And I said, I think if somebody is able to answer that question about what the future of education is, we probably shouldn't appoint them because you know, they're probably, I don't know, maybe a bit too obsessed. Um, but one thing I, I see happening in the, in the industry and certainly happening with people that I'm hiring that I think translates directly to uh, university education certainly um, and I think my answer to some of your question is multidisciplinary teams so all this and I think that's what Will was sort of describing in a way all the successful um, internal design uh, you know teams or companies that embrace design whatever you want to call it they're all working in a multidisciplinary fashion and the thing we don't do at education is teach people how to do that and how to work with other with other people and with other disciplines now to, to some degree maybe uh, um uh, at primary school or secondary school, that's okay. But I think it's sort of at university, and particularly in art or design university, that's, that's unforgivable because the, the idea that you're going to be in your little garret, 
you know, producing things on your own is long, long gone. So as well as being taught you know, design skills, you must be taught how to... So it's more than collaboration. It's naturally working in a multidisciplinary team. So that's one thing I think we could start teaching people. The question here. Uh, I can hear it. We can hear you. That one? Yeah, thanks, Severa. Uh, Paul Fletcher, I'm going to throw a bit of controversy in now. Uh, and I will make specific reference, sorry, to the built environment. And I think the built environment is a classic example of how dysfunctional design is today. The built environment today exists for one thing, rapid return from property investment. It does not care one iota about people. The built environment ceased being people-centric, human-centric many, many years ago. It has been materially eroding people's quality of life for a long, long time now. And we, collectively as designers, I used to be an architect. I surrendered my profession two years ago out of protest because it is no longer fit for purpose at all. We are as bad now to actually be killing people. We did this spectacularly in West London recently. It's time we collectively accepted we're all culpable and started afresh. We cannot improve on this. We need to think differently. This is the role of design in the fourth industrial revolution. Not just keep adding more to what we've always done. It is starting afresh. It is remembering that this is about human well-being. And this goes across all things. I just have very direct experience of the built environment. Yeah, I, I, I would certainly agree with that. So I've spent 16 years pedalling around on my bicycle. We export our bike to 44 countries around the world, but we don't export it to countries. We export it to cities in those countries. So all I've done, we've got 1,200 shops across 44 countries, is pedal on a bicycle around cities. We're in Thailand, Singapore, China. Seoul, you name it. And I entirely concur with your point of view, but I'm quite optimistic, notwithstanding the fact that we're in a bit of a dodgy situation, because what has happened, my perception, is somewhere in the last, last 10 years, governments, and this is happening in Taipei, it's happened in Seoul, it's happened in L.A., are realizing they've created this society that is simply awful for us and our well-being, as I said earlier, mental and physical. And that's not been realized. And they've realized they've got a tsunami of enormous incoming bills that they simply cannot afford. Now, this has taken a bit of a while for them to work it out, but they are definitely working it out. So it may not be quite as fast and as, 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 as radical as you may like, but I see globally a realisation at government that things have to change and that little automated pods, as I was talking about, is not the solution. It's part of the solution, but it ain't the solution. We've got to open it up. We've got to come out from under the ground and take back our free space in our cities, as you say. We are nearly out of time. I see one question over here uh, in the front row, and then um, we're sadly going to have to wrap up. Um, if you can please be very swift with your question. Very quick question. My name is George Chiesa. Uh, about the ethics in design, a lot of the design in social media is addictive. And it's addictive in terms of user experience to the point of being unhealthy. So it's not just the unhealthy on the physical side. What are we doing as a society to get ethics into the curriculum of the people who design stuff to make sure that they design stuff that is good for society? Uh, thank you, everyone. Um, we, we have, we have, oh. That's a question. That's a question. Oh. oh, we're not doing anything. It is, you know, we're not doing anything is the answer, and it's a real problem. Um, I, I think the, um, the lady there said data is the, is the clay, or data is the new clay. Uh, you know, to give you an example, a thing you see on the front of The Economist all the time is data is the new oil, and, that, you know, the good bits and bad bits of that are both true. And, you know, it took, what, 
70, 80 years, and we're only starting to wake up to the harmful effects of oil. You know, I just hope it doesn't take as long, you know, with data. Let's hope Facebook is a sort of tipping point for people to wake up to the, you know, ethics of these things. I don't think it will be, if I'm honest, partly because it's too addictive, but partly because there's a huge lack of understanding of, you know, the power of these things, um, you know, and, and the power of these companies at every level from schools to, uh, you know, politicians. So um, <clears throat> I don't, we're, we're doing almost nothing um, and we need to do a lot, lot more to understand that. Apologies, I missed the question part of that. Um, are there any final comments from our panel before we wrap up? Um, we have run out of time. Um, thank you for your excellent questions. I'm delighted to say that uh, there is a drinks reception downstairs. Regrettably, it's not on the mezzanine at Brompton. Um, it's downstairs in the Benjamin Franklin room. Um, and uh, I said I wanted a healthy debate um, tonight and through this paper, and I think we've certainly... Um, achieved that and, and these points around education are, are well made and um, we'll be looking at that uh, uh, further as we go forward. If you'd like to continue the discussion, please join us downstairs. Um, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Innovate UK one more time as well as my paper's co-author, Josie Warden. She couldn't be here tonight. Um, and please join me in thanking our excellent panel, Will, Deborah, Lee and Ben. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.